Uh, welcome everyone to Keystone, a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're in the fourth week of a series that we've called What is the Bible? And as I've mentioned all along, this is incredibly important information. And it's also an intensely personal series for me for four very good reasons. Uh, many of you know my wife Sarah Ann and I have four boys ages six, eight, 10 and 12. And actually our little one, Wilson, turns six officially tomorrow. And I'm happy to report he still has his orange hair. So, I mean, we're, we're in good shape. Um, but it's our desire that our boys build their faith in Jesus on a firm foundation. And that includes uh, being a part of a church that teaches the Bible like Keystone. And also that, that they would begin to read the Bible for themselves uh, and so a few years ago, uh, my wife and I got Carter, our eldest, a Bible. And I'll never forget, he's unwrapping the Bible and he's sort of opening it up for the first time. He's holding it in his hands. And I had this thought that flashed through my mind, like, there are a few things I should probably tell him about the Bible before he reads the Bible. Almost like you need a little orientation course before you dive in, or, or at least an orientation sort of course would be helpful. Uh, because I've been teaching the Bible for right around 20 years, and I know that there are places where it's not a real easy book to read. And so that night we put the kids to bed. I'm sitting on the couch with, with my wife and I, and I shared my observation. And, and she said to me, I bet a lot of people would like to know your orientation to the Bible because a lot of us struggle specifically with certain aspects of the Bible. It's just not that easy a book to read. And so this series has been in the works for a while, but this is my admittedly inadequate attempt to orient you to the Bible. And my hope is by the end of this series, you'll fall in love with the Bible as I have, and you'll begin a regular practice of reading it if you haven't for a while or maybe never have. And, and so each week uh, in this series, you've been with us, you know, I've begun our time by making an initial observation about the Bible that if you've never heard it before is incredibly important sort of as a foundation uh, and explains why it's so easy to get confused in reading the Bible. It goes like this. Though the Bible looks like a book, it doesn't exactly read like a book because it's not really a book. Thank you. I worked long and hard on that one, right? The Bible looks like a book. You can put it on your shelf right next to your Harry Potter collection. It doesn't exactly read like a book. Uh, if you've ever tried, you know, it, it's like there's different types of literature contained in it. Uh, and as we dig in, we find it's, it's not really a book. It, what it is, it's, it's a collection of books. It's a collection of 66 books by around 40 authors, written over 1,500 years of time on three continents in three different languages. The authors of these books were real people living in real places at real times with real struggles. And moreover, their writings were shaped by the social and political and economic and religious environments in which they lived. Uh, moreover, the story of how the Bible came together into one volume is really critical to understanding what it is as well. And so that's what we've been exploring in, in this series. Well, today I want to flow, or I want to deal with a question that flows out of the past two weeks' teachings. And so if you haven't been with us, I want to take a few moments and just sort of catch you up. We've been exploring um, how the Bible is organized around something called covenants. And a covenant is basically an agreement that defines the terms of a relationship. The covenants in the Bible define the terms of relationships between God and different groups of people. Uh, the most familiar co uh, covenants in the Bible you're probably familiar with, there's the 
Old Testament or Old Covenant. Testament and covenant mean the same thing. And the New Covenant or the New Testament. And these covenants, again, define the terms of relationship between God and people. And last week we noted that when reading the Bible, it's imperative to know where you are in the story and the covenant under which the story you're reading takes place. Because if you don't, again, the Bible can be incredibly confusing. And our big idea last week kind of explains why. I shared that my wife and I were in Jerusalem uh, in January, and our guide said this, and I wrote it on a napkin because I thought it was brilliant. It goes like this. He said, though all of the Bible was written for you, and it's all God's word for you, he says, not all of the Bible was written to you. And that's a big deal because if you don't understand the parts that are to you, sometimes you can get really again, confused. In fact, if you read the Bible carefully, you know this has to be true because there are actually times where the Old Testament commands you one thing and the New, com- uh, New, com- or New Testament commands another thing, and it's impossible to obey these commands simultaneously. Let me show you what I mean. Um, an excellent example comes from Jesus' most famous sermon. Uh, Imagine it with me. It's 2,000 years ago. Jesus is teaching on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's on a higher elevation, so it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a lot of Jesus' most famous teaching materials. And during this sermon, and again, hundreds of Jewish people have gathered to hear this itinerant teacher. And here's what Jesus says about halfway through the sermon. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. Now, Jesus' original audience, again, would have heard that before. In fact, it's a direct quote from an Old Testament Testament command given to the children of Israel by a man named Moses. It's found in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Let me show you the original quote. Here's what Moses tells the people. He says, show no pity. This is, again, what God's commanding his people. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. What this means practically is that if somebody causes an accident and you lose your hand, in retribution, you can go take their hand, right? If something happens and they cause you to lose one of your eyes, then you can take their eye. So show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This had sort of been the, the worldview of ancient Israel for hundreds of years when Jesus makes this comment, but Jesus isn't done talking yet. So what's interesting is instead of explaining how he understood this command, Jesus shocked his audience with a single word. Check out what he says as he continues. He says, you have heard it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but, and friends, that is a big but. Come on, that's a great pastor joke. I've been waiting all week for that one, right? No, it's a big but, and we're thinking, and the people that were listening to Jesus are thinking, Time out, Jesus. What do you mean, but? You can't but something handed to us by Moses. But he did. (laughs) That's just a great joke. All right. But he says, I tell you. So you've heard it said, as in Old Covenant. Here we go. I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone wants... Or to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And friends, I would just observe that you cannot possibly take an eye for an eye while at the same time turning the other cheek. These two teachings by Moses and Jesus are fundamentally incompatible. It's critical for us to note that the Bible, though, is not contradicting itself. 
Both commands were relevant in the times and situations they were given, but both commands do not apply to followers of Jesus. And that's why knowing what parts of the Bible are to you can clear up a lot of frustration that has characterized the faith journeys of Jesus' followers, sometimes for generations. So last time, kind of in summary, um, I, I said this right at the end of our talk. I said, God's commands to ancient Israel are not the same thing as his commands to you. God's promises to ancient Israel are not the same as his promises to you. In fact, the author of a New Testament letter called Hebrews tells you that your promises through Jesus are actually better. And you'll find them in the New Testament of your Bible. So that's where we've been for the last two weeks. And uh, thankfully, at least a few of you were paying attention. And here's how I know that. Uh, there is a question that falls out of all this. And all week when I was around doing my middle class dad thing, taking the minivan to Aldi and Costco and Home Depot, a bunch of you kept approaching me and asking the same question. Here's the question. Why should a Christian read the Old Testament? Because apparently I did a decent job convincing you that this was not specifically uh, to you, though it may be for you. So why in the world should a Christian read the Old Testament? And to each of you, I said, I'm so glad you asked. Make sure you're there Sunday. <laughs> because as it turns out, there are a few great reasons for a Christian to read the Old Testament. And to show you what those reasons are, I need to give you a bit of history and explain why Gentile or non-Jewish Christians got interested in the Old Testament in the first place. It turns out Gentile Christians have been interested in what the Old Testament has to say for almost as long as there have been Gentile Christians. Because after placing their faith in Jesus, they, become fa they became fascinated with the Bible Jesus grew up with. Uh, they would have called it the Hebrew Bible. And again, the Bible as we know it didn't exist yet. Uh, but Jesus would have grown up with the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. And they would have called it the Hebrew Bible because it's not very creatively named. It was originally written in Hebrew. Uh, and Hebrew is an incredibly difficult language to learn for a number of reasons that I experienced in all their glory about two years ago. This is actually a picture of my Hebrew Bible from seminary. Please be impressed. Randy told me that if I highlighted a section of it, though I have no idea what it says, it would make me look smarter than I am. So I thought that was fun. So that's actually what I did. Uh, <laughs> we read left to right. Hebrew reads right to left. So that's your first challenge. The second challenge is that the alphabet is completely different. The third challenge is that the vowels are actually written above and below the consonants, and the vowels will change depending on what letters are around it. And so after my eight months studying Hebrew, it is my guess that it probably takes about 10 years for someone in America to be able to read the Old Testament in its original Hebrew. For seminarians, they give us just enough to be dangerous. So anyway, um, in the late first century, Gentile Christians began to embrace the Hebrew Bible as sacred. But this is really critical. While Gentiles were interested in the Jewish scripture, they weren't the least bit interested in Jewish religion. So that's, that's worth repeating. While Gentile Christians became interested in the Jewish scriptures, they weren't the least bit interested in Jewish religion. See, they understood that what Jesus came to bring was something new. Jesus came as a Jew in, uh, under the old covenant, but his mission and message went beyond Israel. Consequently, early Christians adopted the Jewish Bible, but not the Jewish religion. They took the book, but they did not take the culture or the commands. 
You say, so what, what, what did they do? Well, they did what you'd expect them to do. They embraced faith in Jesus. And so they went back into the Old Testament looking for Jesus. And they found him everywhere in ways that were stunning. Throughout Jesus' life, he fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. What, what this tells us is that the life of Jesus was set apart well before it even began by God. Jesus was the anointed one. He was the promised one. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. And when you read the Old Testament, you're going to find prophecies about his birth and about his life, and perhaps most amazingly, about his death and his resurrection. I want to show you just one of these prophecies because it gets me really excited every time I read it. Um, it's recorded in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who lived 600 years before the time of Jesus. So Isaiah is a prophet and prophets would speak the words of God to the people of God. And Isaiah writes of this mysterious, well, he called it a suffering servant whose hardships would benefit ancient Israel and then somehow benefit the world. And again, shrouded in mystery. But let me show you what Isaiah wrote. He said, he's speaking of this, again, mysterious suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, but, and you may have heard this next part, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Another way to think about iniquities and transgressions would be the word sin. So he's punished for the sins of his people. He continues, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So somehow this, this servant is, is punished and his punishment actually brings us peace. And again, this was promised to a people who were in a world that didn't have a lot of, of peace. It says the Lord, speaking of God, has laid on him the inequity of us all. You're telling me the suffering servant is actually going to carry the sins of other people. Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He continues, he says, For he was cut off from the land of the living. It's a poetic way of saying of this, this mysterious suffering servant, he, he died. And why did he die? For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So the sin was placed on him, and because of this, he, he, he was killed. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The suffering servant, he himself didn't sin, but he was carrying the sins of others. He says, after the suffering of his soul, and this, was, this would have been the showstopper, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And again, lots of mystery for the ancient Jews. But after the resurrection, you look back and you see he will see the light of life again. After death, this mysterious suffering servant will rise again. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. and He will bear their iniquities. He's carrying their sins and he's giving them righteousness. He's taking their pain and he's bringing them, he's bringing them peace. And I read this every time and I think, isn't that incredible? 600 years before the time of Jesus, this prophecy 
was given. And it contains extraordinarily precise details about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's so detailed, in fact, that it captured the attention of early Christians who began to study the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And I would argue it's incredibly valuable for us to do the same. That's reason number one, I would argue we should read the Old Testament. But there's another reason I think Christians should read the Old Testament. And it's actually our big idea for today. It goes like this. The Old Testament is the history of God preparing the world for the Savior. The Old Testament is the history of God preparing the world for the Savior. It's the backstory that helps us understand and appreciate the events of Jesus' life. Much of what Jesus does, much of what Jesus says is connected to the Old Testament story. Moreover, the Old Testament's 38 books contain the record of God progressively moving towards a creation who had turned away from him. Over and over again, we see God acting like a good father who accommodates his message to his people's capacity. He meets them where they are and he invites them to take the next right step forward. And what this means for us practically as we're reading the Old Testament is there will be times when we read something and we think that seems so backwards. And from our perspective in history, it is. But what is regressive for us today was radically progressive when it was introduced in the ancient world. Because over a period of generations, God again was preparing the world for a savior. There are some things they needed to know and there are some things that they needed to understand at the level of their heart. By way of example, I want to show you uh, a command from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy is a record of a speech given by Moses uh, right before Moses exits planet Earth and hands the leadership of the nation of Israel uh, to his understudy. And in this epic speech that Moses gives, uh, he summarizes what God has done. And he also reminds the people of how God wants them to live. But right in the middle of this speech, Moses says something that to the modern reader is, is, well, it's pretty offensive. I'll show you what he says. He says, when you go to war against your enemies, which again happens in the ancient world, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives. So you've gone to battle and you've won, which is a good deal. He says, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. And I, I realized that at least half of our room just went, hold up a second, right? And some of you just went, this is why I don't read the Old Testament, right? And I'm just telling you as your pastor, we got to be honest about what's in there. And, and, and I want to show you a way to read this. But I mean, this is, I mean, dude, come on, right? Uh, he says, oh, and it gets worse, by the way. So just hang with me here. Bring her, this year you're like, I never got this passage when I was growing up in church. Anyway, bring her into your home, have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. Oh, it's not done yet. Here we go. Um, after she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband. Yes, there's innuendo there. And she shall be your wife. If that isn't enough, if you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. One more slide. Um, you must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Thus says the Lord, right? <laughs> 
And we read this today, again, or we don't, and we have some adjectives, right? We have some adjectives, do we not, ladies? I just made some. <clears throat> Primitive, barbaric, sexist, demeaning, degrading, and ridiculous. And we think, how could anyone who respects women read this and, and, and connect it to anything to do with faith? But as we're going to see, there's a lot more going on in this passage than meets the eye. This passage describes something called the spoils of war. And this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. People were constantly going to battle, and some were winning, and some were losing. And according to the conventional wisdom of the day, whoever won the battle could go take whatever belonged to their now-dead adversaries for themselves. Animals, jewelry, tents, food, slaves, and of course, wives. And they could do with the property whatever they wanted. Items and people could be sold, discarded, or abused as they saw fit. So into that world and into, and into a, a society that would have had that worldview, this passage comes. In the ancient world, when a man wasn't pleased with a woman that he had captured as a spoil of war, he was free to send her away into a culture where she had no rights or protection. And as a result, women in this situation often had no option but prostitution. And this passage forbids sending a rejected woman away. It was a significant positive deviation for the cultural norms regarding the spoils of war. If you think about it, you, you take the woman that you found attractive into your home, that meant you were providing for her a roof, protection, food, and clothes. If you allow her to shave her head, trim her nails, change her clothes, that means you're allowing her to take on the marks of mourning. I mean, she had suffered a horrific loss, and so she was to be allowed to properly grieve. Making her your wife meant that she was now a full member of the household. She had responsibilities and, and rights and position. This was a revolutionary idea at the time that it was given. In other words, what is rightfully shocking and offensive to us was a groundbreaking advancement at the time. We look back on this passage, and it's clearly a step backwards for us, and it's certainly not a command God intended for us, and all the ladies said, amen, thank you, right? But for the original audience, it was a huge step forward. It was, a, it was an affirmation that women were people, not possessions. And so throughout the Old Testament, like a good father, God accommodates his message to the capacity and worldview of his people and invites them to take a step in the right direction. Years ago, um, I was at a church and I heard a pastor describe the Old Testament in a really memorable and kind of fun way. So I want to share that with you and maybe this will hang with you like it has with me. Uh, he said, uh, Think about the Old Testament a bit like this. He said, imagine parents of teenagers who for their 20th anniversary decide they're going to go on an epic Caribbean adventure. And some of you just thought that is the best thing you've said all day. There you go, right? But before they leave, uh, they ask their teenagers to be sure to clean out the garage while they're gone. And the teenagers agree. And, and so they go away, they get on the plane, they get on the boat, they have this absolutely amazing Caribbean adventure, and they come back tan and rested and with t-shirts for their kids that said, my parents went on a cruise and all I got was a stupid t-shirt, one of those, right? And as they turn into their neighborhood, there are cars lining both sides of the street. 
Some of you already know. Some of you are like, dude, I've had this happen. Right. Cars are lining the streets. And, and it's really weird, but they look down the road and, you know, like the sun has set and there are searchlights that are in their front yard. And it apparently, it appears like Mardi Gras has descended upon their, their homestead. And as they pull into the driveway, things go from bad to worse. There are teenagers everywhere. There are teenagers on the roof doing flips into the swimming pool. There is a DJ in the living room. There are four beers on tap in, in the kitchen. There are people everywhere doing everything teenagers are not supposed to be doing. And so the mom and dad walk in, they leave their bags in the car, they walk into the house, they find their beloved offspring, and they have a bit of a chit-chat, right? And they look upon the children who, for whom they have sacrificed and loved, and they say to these children, you didn't clean the garage. You wouldn't say that, right? Because there are a few things that we need to talk about before we talk about the garage. We're going to get to the garage. But unplug the DJ, shut off the taps, and get all these extra teenagers out of here. And so, in a similar way, when God reengages creation, it is off the rails. When God rescues ancient Israel from Egypt, they are living so far away from his design, they wouldn't be able to begin to process the sort of life he intended for them to live. So he starts with the important stuff first. And that's what we need to know. That's why we need to know where we are in the story when we open the Bible and we read the Old Testament. When we drop in with the correct expectations, we can see that God is always ahead of his people and he's inviting them to take the next step forward. When we read the Old Testament this way, we read the Old Testament for what it is, a collection of radically progressive books that were way ahead of their time. So, uh, kind of in conclusion, for Christians to ignore the Old Testament is to miss the mess that God waded into in order to see the story of redemption played out to its bloody, crucified end. The Old Testament is a saga of ancient people struggling to survive in a world where food was scarce, enemies were everywhere, and death was just a minor infection away. And in spite of that, they clung to God and he clung to them careful not to override their freedom with his presence. The Old Testament is a history with a divine purpose. And the beautiful message is it's a history that ultimately included you and me. Friends, the story of the Old Testament, the story of the Jewish people is incredible. And when we read it, we don't need to try to tidy it up and it's not a spiritual guidebook, it's the story of God preparing the world and preparing human hearts for his Messiah, your Savior, Jesus Christ. Just stand and I'll close us in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us enough to accept us just as we are and you invite us forward. We're thankful 
for the record of your activity in human history that we can watch and wonder as you move towards a creation that ran away from you and you bring about renewal and redemption and salvation. So we thank you for these ancient stories. We thank you for the ways that they can inspire us, that they can motivate us. We thank you for the way that even in the strangest passages in the Old Testament, we see your love for people shining through. <coughs> Finally, in this place, we thank you for Jesus, the promised Messiah, who came among us as one of us and loved us in ways that we cannot begin to deserve, took our sins on his shoulders and went to the cross so that we could be free. Finally, we acknowledge that we gather 2,000 years later because your son, our savior, didn't stay dead. And because of the resurrection, because he rose, we too have the hope that one day we will rise. And so we thank you. We bless you. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part five of What is the Bible? <laughs>